Our first reading is from the Old Testament, and it comes from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, and you'll find it on page 473 of the Church Bibles. I'm reading selected verses from the early part of chapter 8. This is a little bit of background. Nehemiah has successfully managed the building project to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and now it's time to focus on rebuilding the people of God. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled with one accord in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meanings so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Our second reading comes from the Gospel of Luke and is a beautifully parallel passage, for here we see someone else standing up to read the words of the prophet Isaiah. You'll find it in Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 14 on page 973. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, 
where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the, the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. Loving God, all those words and thoughts that come from you, will you bless them and make them fruitful? And all those words and thoughts that come not from you, but from our own foolishness, will you forgive them? Amen. Up to this point in Luke's Gospel, we've only heard Jesus speak twice. The first time was when he was a 12-year-old boy, as you may remember and he got left behind at the temple, and he spoke to his parents to explain uh, what had happened. His second recorded words are to the devil when he was being uh, tempted immediately after his baptism. So it's only now, as we get to the synagogue in Nazareth, that we hear Jesus giving what you might call his first public address. And it's a very significant moment because... This is the point when Jesus announces to the world who he is and what he's all about, what he's come to do. And it could sound a little bit like a political manifesto. And it is, in fact, deeply political, I think. Proclaiming good news to the poor could certainly say something to our economic system. Talking about release for captives could affect our understanding of justice. Sight to the blind could be about how we conduct our health services and freeing the oppressed might indicate a concern for human rights. As Archbishop Desmond Tutu once famously said, when people say that the Bible and politics don't mix, I ask them which Bible they're reading. The message for us as Christians then is clear. Whatever Christianity means, it doesn't mean an escape from earthly reality. We may count ourselves as citizens of a kingdom that is not of this world, 
but it's still a kingdom in which the causes of justice and peace are inseparable from a right relationship with God. There's no excuse for us Christians being so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly use. This is all true, I sincerely believe. But in this text and in the Bible generally, the political dimension is secondary. The main focus is on the word of the Lord, prophecy. Now it's quite important to understand what prophecy means. In the popular imagination, I guess, the word prophecy conjures up images of old men with beards who make predictions about the future of the world. Well, it's very likely that most of the prophets of Israel had beards because men did. It's likely that many of them were men, though not all of them, and many of them were indeed old, though again, not all of them. Remember, Samuel was called when he was still a boy. But then there's a whole business about predicting the future, which is where some people start to get very excited and begin to scan the events of history and try to match them up with texts from the Bible. I'm sure that's a very interesting leisure pursuit, but I'm not really sure it's what we're supposed to be doing. If you look at the prophetic texts in general, you will see that what they do is they paint a picture of an ideal world which reflects the will of God. They are texts of hope in which wickedness is overcome and justice and peace rule the world. And sometimes... This hope is transformed into a promise, an assurance that one day God will act to bring in God's perfect kingdom. And on a very few occasions, this promise is attached to someone or something in particular. But even in these very few instances, I still think it's a mistake to get too caught up in trying to predict the future, because... And this is the thing that's important to remember. The prophets were speaking to the people of their own day. They were bringing the word of the Lord to the people who could hear them. The role of the prophet was to speak the word of the Lord to his people in order to challenge them and to inspire obedience, faithfulness and trust and to offer encouragement and hope. What's so amazing about these ancient prophetic words is not that they have correctly predicted the future, but that they continue to challenge us and inspire us and encourage us and fill us with hope even today. Well, okay, Alex, you might say, but how do you explain today's gospel reading in which Jesus reads the ancient words of the prophet Isaiah and then says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Isn't that a perfect example of prophecy being about something that happens in the future? And my answer to that is no, not exactly. In order to explain what I mean, I think we need to push a bit further into the story today. In fact, we need to follow the story a bit further 
because our reading this morning actually missed off the end. And it's important for me to say that wasn't Linda's fault. It's the way it's all sort of chopped up for us to listen to. So what happens next in the story is that the people of Nazareth were so enraged by what Jesus said that they tried to throw him off a cliff. To be honest, it's quite difficult to understand the argument that ensues, but it kicked off when uh, a few people started to say, hang on a second, Jesus, this all sounds very fancy, but aren't you the carpenter's son? I hasten to say that's my translation, not the original text. In other words, although the people of Nazareth knew the words of Isaiah, they also knew Jesus, and they couldn't accept that the prophecy applied to him. So not for the first time in Jesus' life, people thought he was claiming too much for himself. And not for the first time, people tried to kill him for it. What's at stake here, I think, and through the whole of the Gospel, is the identity of Jesus. Who is he? Up to this point, there's been absolutely no doubt. The birth stories are very clear. He is the child of God. The story of his baptism ends with a heavenly pronouncement. This is my beloved son. Even the devil in the wilderness knows who Jesus is. But from now onwards, the question of Jesus' true identity becomes contested and ends in a final charge, which gets him killed, which is that he is a blasphemer, someone who claims to stand in the place of God. And this, I think, is what today's gospel is, is what's happening in today's gospel reading. The coming of Jesus is not just the moment in history when an ancient prediction comes to pass. Jesus is the one in whom all prophecy finds its fulfillment because he is the one in whom all the goodness, mercy and truth of God reside. The fulfillment of prophecy in Jesus is not about prediction, it's about identity. The word of the Lord isn't about him, it is him. In Jesus, you can't separate the word of God from the being of God. Or, as we might say, he is the living word of God. Well, we might very well say that, but it's a big claim and it's not one that the people of Nazareth were prepared to accept, and many other people beside. And in fact, we see time and time again in the Gospel story that the question of Jesus' true identity provokes conflict, even deadly conflict, as it nearly did that day in Nazareth, and as it really did on Calvary. So what I want to suggest to you and to me is that this is the question that the gospel puts to us today, and indeed every Sunday, and in fact every day of our lives. Who is Jesus? It's a question we all have to answer, and it is a question that will likely cause conflict. Certainly the conflict may sometimes be with other people, 
especially if we get too involved with being good news to the poor, bringing release to the captives, and so on. But the conflict will just as surely be within ourselves. Because in many and various ways, each one of us is poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. Though we may not always know it, and we may have got quite used to it. It's hard, isn't it, to acknowledge our need. It's hard to admit when we're trapped. It's hard to accept that our vision is flawed. It's not easy to accept that the shape of our lives has been moulded by forces that are beyond our control. The prophets of old often made themselves very unpopular by calling for the reordering of the world in accordance with the word of God. And again and again, the Gospels bear witness to the struggle that ensues when Jesus comes upon the scene and people find themselves exposed to the living word of God. The truth is, in a metaphorical sense at least, there are parts of us that would rather push Jesus off a cliff than acknowledge his lordship over our lives. But in answer to the question, who is Jesus? You simply can't say, Jesus is Lord, and then go on as if nothing has happened. That's just paying lip service. If Jesus is Lord, then there are consequences As we know from his visit to that synagogue in Nazareth, he has a manifesto, an agenda. And what he wants can't be separated from who he is. And if that alarms us, let's not forget what it is that Jesus wants. Good news for the poor, release for the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom for the oppressed... As the prophet Isaiah said, Jesus comes among us to proclaim the the year of the Lord's favour. If there is a struggle, then it's the birth pangs of a new creation. When I spoke earlier about the identity of Jesus, I said that he is the one in whom all the goodness, mercy and truth of God reside. And that is absolutely true. But it isn't the whole truth. The whole truth is that Jesus is the one in whom all the goodness, mercy and truth of God reside for us. Being for us is part of his identity too. He is both Lord and Saviour. The word of the Lord that comes to us through him is a word of hope and challenge, and the promise of God's gracious love for us, both today and forever. So come, Lord Jesus, be our good news, our healing, our freedom. Come, Lord Jesus, and save us, your people. Amen.